Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. It's Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, and today on the program, our guest is Dr. Terry L. Woodard, who is an associate professor in the Department of Gynecological Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center. She holds a joint appointment in the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital Pavilion for Women. As a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist, she has a specific interest in fertility preservation and family building for people diagnosed with cancer. Dr. Woodard, welcome to ASRM Today. Thank you so much for having me. So you're a first-time guest for us, so maybe not a lot of people are aware, but I usually like to ask my first-time guests about what led you to choose reproductive medicine as a career. So actually, I had no idea that this subspecialty existed, um, was not on my radar at all. So relatively a late bloomer when it comes to choosing this field. Um, I was actually groomed to be a geriatrician and then realized I really liked OBGYN. And it was in my later years of residency that I was exposed to the IVF lab and I just found it to be mind-blowing. I've always had an interest in kind of like quality of life issues. I did a lot of um, work in the sexual medicine realm and it fit naturally with cancer and cancer survivorship. So I ended up seeing a lot of young women who you know, suffered from sexual complaints. And then as part of that, that was the fertility issues that came up and ended up kind of finding my niche in this area and have been loving it so far. What was so mind-blowing about IVF? Just the whole idea of it or? It was the whole idea of it. I mean, honestly, (laughs) you know, being in the lab and seeing, you know, someone fertilize an egg with a sperm under a microscope and watching embryos grow over days, I just found it fascinating. I think the genetics of it is fascinating and all that we can do with genetics these days in terms of genetic testing and where that's going to take us in the future. And then um, more importantly, I think the patients are just phenomenal. And my particular patient population, which are mostly people with cancer, these are people that just have a tremendous amount of resilience. Um, They're so thankful for what we can do for them, especially, you know, since they feel like this is one thing they might have a little bit of control over. I'm glad you mentioned that too, because I wanted to ask you, your speciality mm-hmm. is uh, fertility preservation and family building for people diagnosed with cancer. Can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about what are the current statistics regarding diagnosis and treatment of ovarian cancer? So in the United States, over 20,000 women are expected to be diagnosed with ovarian cancer each year. The majority of those women are beyond the reproductive years, so typically not the patient population I would see. But a significant minority, about 12%, are of reproductive age, and we do see a lot of those patients. And I think out of all the gynecologic cancers, these are some of the most difficult because the cancer is affecting the ovary, the primary source of where our, of our genetic material is. So it is definitely challenging. And even though sometimes our options might be somewhat limited, I think it's very important that providers make sure that we address the fertility issues that arise for this subset of patients. Have you found in your work then, uh, or even when you've gone to conferences and talked 
also with peers. Are there any current best practices then you can recommend to practitioners who are seeing patients or maybe are first now just beginning to see patients worried about or even diagnosed with ovarian cancer? So I think one thing, there are ASCO guidelines, the American Society for Clinical Oncology. Um, They have guidelines that they first put out back in 2006, and they've been updated multiple times over the past several years. But basically, these guidelines state that as providers, it's our responsibility to inform patients with cancer of the risk of infertility that could be caused by their treatment, whether it's radiation therapy, chemotherapy, surgery, and that patients should be referred for these discussions as early as possible in the course of treatment planning to see if anything can be done. As a fertility specialist, yes, I freeze embryos, I freeze eggs, I do embryo transfer, but I really do feel that the most important thing that I do is educate and counsel. I think the most angry patients are the ones that come back and say, you know what, no one ever told me that this was going to happen and this is the situation I was going to be in. And even those patients who are very sick are appreciative that we at least acknowledged the fact that fertility is going to be an issue. I want to go back. You you mentioned earlier that a large percentage of cancer diagnosis is happening for women that are beyond fertility age, which is, what is that age again? Is is it, it's considered over? So there is later reproductive age, but I would say when you look at ovarian cancer specifically, the age of cutoff they usually talk about is around age 44, 45. Mm-hmm. And that's where the 12% of patients are less than that age that these conversations would be relevant to. Are there any specific things that you've seen that the research has found as far as, is it diet? Is it genetics? Is it a combination of things? I believe it's a combination of things. Of course, I don't have an oncology background per se, but in the patient populations that we see, you know, we do see a significant number of people who carry hereditary cancer mutations like BRCA. Um, And even those who have the mutation who do not have a personal history of cancer are encouraged to see us to talk about genetic testing. Is this something that they want to prevent passing along to their children? Or, you know, people who are BRCA carriers often have to have their ovaries removed at some point. So some of those patients will opt um, to pursue fertility preservation or just IVF in general to A, complete their families, and B, ensure that that genetic mutation is not passed down. Do you often worry that there's probably a large percentage of any given population that isn't aware? You know, one, they can't get to a hospital, or two, services aren't provided in the community, you know, et cetera? Yes, I think that is a huge problem. I think probably the majority of patients probably aren't getting appropriate counseling. They may get a little basic thing or there might be a blurb in their consent form saying, hey, this could affect fertility. But as far as them having an actual conversation and comprehending and understanding what that is, is a whole different story. And um, one thing that we've tried to do, at least at our institutions, both here at MD Anderson and at Texas Children's, is make sure that we're available to talk to patients who want to discuss these things. The amount of misinformation is incredible. I've even had patients who underwent, you know, fertility sparing therapy. So for instance, you know, if a woman had 
an endometrial cancer. I remember there was a woman that had an endometrial cancer that was early. They opted not to remove her ovaries, but just removed her uterus. And she didn't understand that we could still do IVF and she could have a biological child using a gestational carrier. So even sometimes people opt for treatments that they don't understand what they're able to do with those treatments in the end. So I think information and education is incredibly important. And most people don't have an adequate enough understanding of what's available. Last week, I was talking to uh, Dr. Ruben Alvaro, uh, who's out at Stanford, and we were talking about problems in the Latina, Latinx community. And he and I began a conversation about getting out into the communities themselves. Is there any current programs that you can share with us that, that are doing that type of outreach? Actually, that's one of my research interests. We developed a decision aid to try to make this information more broadly accessible, even by you know a tablet or a cell phone. Other initiatives that we have taken, um, there are two safety net hospitals um, in Houston, um, the Harris County Health System, and we've tried to make inroads with both of these institutions to A, create awareness that, you know, these conversations should be had. And we've also done research in that area and patients say, yes, these conversations are helpful. And I think sometimes in disadvantaged communities, whether it's culturally, economically disadvantaged, there is this reluctance to talk about these things because often insurance does not cover egg freezing, embryo freezing, and things like that. So a lot of oncology providers say, you know, I feel bad bringing this up when I know the patient can't afford it. But one thing I've learned after practicing here for nine years, patients are creative. I've had some that do GoFundMe's. I've had you know, the patient's boyfriend's mother pay for and it was like cryo cycle. So, you know, I think it's pretty short-sighted of us to avoid those conversations just because we're uncomfortable. We're, we're even making large assumptions. Yes. You know, I was driving home the other day and I'm, I'm here in Birmingham, Alabama, and I come up one of many mountains and there's a billboard, like when you turn this one corner and sure enough on the billboard, it's one of those electronic ones. So it's constantly changing, you know, which is probably way too distracting for drivers. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. But sure enough, there was a billboard and it was a, a woman who was saying, help my son get a kidney, you know, call this number. Wow. Donate. Right. And, I, and that's what I was, that's what I was like to think. I, we, we, we underestimate people in general sometimes, especially when they're driven in such amazing, amazing ways. Um, it's ovarian cancer awareness month. And today on the program, my guest is Dr. Terry L. Woodard. We've been having a wonderful conversation, but, but we're almost out of time. I have one more question for you. What are some developments in treatment for ovarian cancer that, that you believe at this time can be helpful for reproductive medicine specialists? So, you know, a lot of the pharmaceutical advances have been more for the treatment of advanced ovarian cancers, which those are patients that typically aren't candidates for reproductive medicine or fertility preservation. But I think one important thing that we often don't think about is the conservative management of ovarian malignancies. I think there's more of a tendency to think about it or consider it in um, women, particularly reproductive age women who have early stage ovarian cancer. So instead of 
going with the standard of care hysterectomy BSO, you know, maybe that one remote ovary can be removed and then we'd still have the opportunity to freeze eggs or better yet for the patient to be able to conceive spontaneously on their own. So I think there's more of a push to that, but I also think there's some reluctance, especially in terms of access where people don't have um, access to larger medical centers, academic centers, where this is not something that's typically offered. But I think the word is getting out. Hopefully it continues to get out because I think there are a large number of women who would benefit from that type of treatment who want to have families in the future. My guest today has been Dr. Terry Woodard. We have been talking about ovarian cancer, ovarian cancer awareness. And I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us here on ASRM today. We're going to have to have you back because we we have a lot more to talk about. That would be great. This was a lot of fun. (laughs) Fantastic. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. 